Hello and welcome to Renewable Roadmaps. My name is Chris Kinane and I'm your host and I am also the Managing Director of Renewable Resource Solutions which specialises in end-to-end recruitment into offshore wind projects. Welcome to episode four um, of Renewable Roadmaps. We're speaking with Georgia Frazier today who is a passionate wind turbine assessment engineer and levelised cost of electricity consultant at RWE Renewables. Georgia studied chemistry, biology and maths at A-level, has an integrated master's in material engineering from Loughborough University and joined the E.ON UK Engineering Graduate Scheme in 2017. She then secured a full-time job as an innovation project manager at E.ON Climate and Renewables, which then changed to RWE Renewables in 2019. I mentioned the early education with A-levels as it forms quite an important part of this conversation and it's also quite an important part of this podcast series as we move through. So yeah, enjoy. Hello, Georgia. How are you doing? Hi, Chris. Yeah, great. Thank you so much for offering for me to come on this podcast. Really looking forward to sharing some of my thoughts with you today. Brilliant. And um, I've done a brief introduction, but just for the uh, the benefit of everyone listening, can you, can you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Georgia Fraser and I am 26 years old. I have a master's in materials engineering from Loughborough University, as you've mentioned, and I've been working in the energy industry for just over three years with half of that being on an engineering graduate scheme and the other half being in the job that I currently hold today. And that job is a WTG or wind turbine assessment engineer as part of the turbine technical development team for RWE Renewables. Brilliant. And I suppose there's there's a few few great topics we can can discuss today. And um, I know education and the importance of early awareness is one thing we can discuss and also the... uh, the exciting stuff that you're actually doing now at RWE and, and you've really you've got some great knowledge on on women in, in STEM and, and some potential challenges and, and ideas for, for how that might look moving forward but I think to, to kick things off can we start with your education background? Sure so I think I'll start from the beginning because that's where it becomes relevant. Um, so when I was at school I was incredibly lucky that I chose triple science at GCSE And that decision turned out to be pretty much the most important decision of my career so far, even though I was only, what, 12 or 13 years old. And I was lucky because I had parents that suggested to me that that would be a useful GCSE to choose, and they were completely right. I then went on to do A-levels, as you've said, in chemistry, biology and maths. And the only reason I could do those A-levels was because I picked those, those science GCSE subjects. And I picked those A-levels because I thought about doing medicine potentially but during my A-levels I really loved chemistry and I loved my chemistry teacher, had a great relationship with him and he kind of suggested that engineering would be a really good career because it's so broad and there's always going to be a demand for it. Um, So I applied for chemical engineering actually and I'm still bitter about it but I got one mark off an A in A-level chemistry Um, so I didn't get on to chemical engineering but I got a a call or an email from Loughborough University and they told me, look, we really liked you in the interview and your grades are good, not quite good enough for chemical engineering, but we can offer you a place on materials engineering. And so I took it and that turned out to be another amazing decision for me. Um, I initially took it thinking that once I'm in the door, I can transfer to chemical engineering because that's what I really wanted to do. 
But as soon as I started, I really found that I really liked materials and it actually had more chemistry in it than chemical engineering, it turns out. So <laughs> it was a it was a very happy thing to happen to me. So while I was at university, I did a placement. And that's a common thing that engineering or science degrees do. You do a year in, in industry, um, in kind of whatever industry you like. And I actually did my placement in a lab. And I was really grateful for this opportunity. And I learned a hell of a lot about myself. But I also learned that I didn't want to work in a lab. I didn't like the, the fine detail work that you have to do. Um, being very, very focused and extremely particular about what you're doing, that just didn't match my personality. And while I was on placement, I actually approached the corporate offices to see if there was anything that I could do there. Any experience possible, I'd be grateful for. And they did. I, I got involved in some activities with the corporate team and I really enjoyed that. And from then, I knew that in the future, I wanted to work in more of a broad, higher level um, kind of overlooking job instead of a specific laboratory job. So when I got into my final year of uni, that's when everyone starts to apply for their graduate jobs. Um, the relentless application process to many, many jobs, it's very difficult. Um, but I knew that I wanted to either work in energy or in pharmaceuticals. Now, energy, because I was starting to really get very passionate about climate change, um, I recognise the problem that this earth is having with climate change and the potential disasters that are going to come in a few years, to be honest, are already coming. Um, for example, in Vietnam, I think, I can't remember the year, but there was a stat that 30,000 people a day were losing their house due to global warming and flooding. And that's something that just really played on my mind. Why are we letting that happen? We need to do something about that. Um, so that was my kind of motivation to go into energy. Secondly, my motivation to go into pharmaceuticals was because I've always been interested in the human body, hence maybe thinking about doing medicine when I was younger. And I did my dissertation on biomaterials. So I did it on um, advanced bio wound dressings for diabetic foot ulcers. Um, you, you'd lay these dressings on and they would help essentially form a natural scaffold to allow tissue that wouldn't have grown to grow into them. And I really enjoyed that. I absolutely loved it. Um, so after I applied for all these jobs, I got my interview with Eon at the time for that engineering graduate scheme. And that was my first ever interview for a grad scheme. I had to do a, I think it was a phone interview, some aptitude tests, and then a, an in-person assessment center. And I got offered the job, which I was incredibly happy about. Um, I think I got away a bit lightly only having to do one assessment center as a grad. Usually people have to do lots. Um, so, I mean, of course I accepted it straight away. Eon at the time were really heavily into renewables, so it was exactly where I wanted to go. So in 2017, that's when I started my grad scheme. And within that, I did three, three placements. The first one was at Rampion Offshore Wind Farm, which is a large wind farm down off the coast of Brighton. And there I worked in the operations team. The wind farm was kind of still under construction when I got there. So it was a lot of setting up the site. How are we going to do this? How are we going to set up our KPIs? How are we going to do our spare part strategy and everything like that? And I absolutely loved it. I found my passion for offshore wind there, and I knew that that's probably where I wanted to go into the future. The second placement I did was actually in district heating. So something completely different to offshore wind. But I knew that on the graduate scheme, that is the time when you can pretty much do whatever you want. And I wanted to get the broadest experience possible. And the placement for district heating was essentially a project management placement. So we were managing the improvement works for one of these sites in London. 
Um, and I was helping to essentially project manage that project, which was a learning curve to say the least. I'd never done anything with district heating and I'd never done project management. Um, so I learned a lot, as you can imagine, thrown in the deep end a little bit. Um, but you know, that's when you learn the most if you're thrown in the deep end. And then my third placement was actually in innovation for Eon Climate and Renewables. And that was actually over in Essen in Germany, which is where their headquarters were. Um, so as you can imagine, amazing experience to be in the headquarters. And what I learned from just being on the graduate scheme in general is that you just need to seize the opportunities and get involved in as much as possible while you can, because that is the time when you can just absorb all that information and you don't have any long-term responsibilities that you have to uphold. You can just spend your time meeting people and learning as much as possible. So while I was on the graduate scheme, we found out that the RWE transaction would take place and ECNR would leave E.ON, so that's E.ON Climate and Renewables, would leave E.ON and join with Energy to become RWE Renewables. And I knew that I wanted to work in renewables and I had to get a job in ECNR before this transaction took place. Otherwise, otherwise I would be essentially kept in E.ON itself um, and the renew renewables would leave um, where I was working. So while I was in Essen, I essentially networked a lot. I spoke to as many people as possible. I applied for as many jobs as possible. Um, and lots of the jobs that I applied for were way above my pay grade, I have to admit. But I thought I'm not going to lose anything by applying. May as well do it. May as well have the interview and have the experience. Um, and actually, one of the jobs that I interviewed for was above my pay grade. But the people afterwards fed back to me that they really liked me but I'm just not experienced enough. However, let's go back and chat to some of our other colleagues and see what we can do. And it so turned out that they went and chatted to a colleague that I'd already networked with. And because of that connection, they were able to move an FTE, so a headcount into a team that was more suitable for me. And that is the current role that I'm in now. So that's the wind turbine assessment engineer um, job that I'm in now. So a lot to do with network building. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it sounds like you very much so um, engineered the opportunity to an extent yourself, um, which I mean, yeah. for, for anyone listening that, you know, is, is currently in university or, or thinking about options and things like that, then, you know, it's hard work to get involved in stuff. But as George has just demonstrated there, you, you know, you have to go out and create these opportunities yourself sometimes. I mean, yeah, that, that's fantastic. So was it during your placement at Eon that, that renewables really got into your radar then? So I was definitely aware of renewables while I was at university, while I was doing this research into climate change and some solutions to climate change. And of course, wind turbines and, and wind power is a huge part of that. And so I was definitely aware of them and I'd done some research, but I definitely didn't know the knowledge to the extent that I learned when I went to Rampion. Um, and it was really at Rampion that I found that passion. Um, and that love for offshore wind in general. Um, it's so exciting and it's so new. There's so much that can happen. If you just look at the announcement of the Vestas 236 rotor diameter, that's meters, 15 megawatt turbine, that's just absolutely ginormous. And 10 years ago, no one would have thought that that would have been possible. So it's just developing so fast and it's very exciting. I, I did see the release myself, but I suppose you've got a very unique view on it as, as you're from the well a technical part of the industry so moving on then in, into your your current role can can you give us some more background on what that looks like yeah so the wind turbine assessment engineer role it's very broad 
We're involved in a lot of different things um, and that's just the nature of the role. And that's why I wanted the role because I wanted to be involved in lots of things. I didn't know which speciality I wanted to go into. And I knew eventually in my career that I want to move into some kind of more strategy business focused role. Um, so it's absolutely perfect for me. And what we do, primarily what we do is technical due diligence on turbines. So what that is, is engagement with the turbine suppliers and our internal experts. And what we do is essentially assess the turbine from a technical standpoint. So we'll do design deep dives on the blades, the generator, the gearbox, transformer tower, et cetera, et cetera, all the different components and assess the risks of that technology and also establish some kind of failure rates throughout the life, lifetime of the turbine. And we really need to do that and assess the risks because when you're developing a project, you have to put some kind of financial model together. And if we see any particular risk with the technology, we need to make sure that that's accounted for in that financial model. Same with the failure rates. The failure rates help determine the operational strategy for the turbine, which again, then inputs into the financial model. So that's one part of the job, well, probably the main part of the job. Um, other stuff we do is I'm involved in our floating development activities. So as a business, um, it's, it's well known that we want to develop in floating, but there's still lots to do in this industry because it's brand new and there's still lots we don't know. So part of my role is finding those things we don't know and trying to solve them. Thirdly, I'm involved in a lot of offshore development work. So I work in UK offshore development and in the APAC region offshore development. And within that, I, it's more of a, a technical consulting role. So I'll provide some technical information for those projects and that will help them develop those projects and to put together the most realistic business case for those projects. And then lastly, within the team, I more do kind of process activities. So I'm, I'm developing our technical due diligence process um, because when we merged the ECR and energy organizations, you know, we have different ways of doing things. And I want to make sure that what we're doing is what we need to do and the best for our stakeholders. And I also work on things like team KPIs, which is key performance indicators. So a lot of different things um, and a lot of broad activities, which is what I love. I was going to say, it sounds like a lot of plates being spun, but also <laughs> very, no no one day sounds like it's the same for you. How, how do you manage all these multiple different tasks that are ongoing at any one time? Yeah, you're right. Definitely no day is the same. I don't think I've ever had a day that's the same in the year and a half I've been doing this role. Um, how to manage things? Well, I have a, a mentor actually, and I was struggling with how to manage things in the past. And he told me a very simple solution. And that's every morning, do your to-do list, do your daily to-do list, do your weekly to-do list, do your monthly to-do list. And it really just helps, helps set out what you need to do and assign priorities to those things too. There are a lot of things going on and sometimes there are two things that need to be submitted at the same time and you just have to learn to prioritise those things. Brilliant and I know you mentioned about the Vestas uh, new announcement recently but is, is there any other sort of um, knowledge on the market that you're allowed to talk of of course of, of how things are going to develop? Um, well specifically I probably can't go into details, but definitely generally, the renewables market is changing so rapidly because it's still actually quite new. If we think about how long kind of coal fired and gas fired power plants have been running, renewables are incredibly new. And what that means is that 
it's still undergoing a lot of change and organizations and technology is still evolving rapidly to become more efficient and more effective. And what that means is that there is a loads of jobs, loads of jobs in renewables at the moment, and there will be in the future even more so. Um, but because of that, on the flip side, it's also becoming a lot more competitive. We're seeing the entry of the big oil and gas giants like BP and Shell, um, and they have a lot of capex, a lot of money ready to invest in these projects. And that means that we really have to stay on top of our game as existing renewables operators and developers. We really need to keep up with them, which we are doing so far, which is good news. But no, in general, rapid change. Um, and of course, that makes for a very exciting market to be in. So what about RWE as an organisation? Yeah, so RWE is a German energy company, actually. It's a German energy giant. And RWE Renewables is a company of RWE AG, which is the parent company. And it was actually only formed fully last year with the merger of ECR and Energy, as I've mentioned before. And that merger made us the second biggest global player in offshore wind. And of course, we want to expand more into our key markets in Europe and in the US, and even more so into APAC, where we're seeing a lot of emerging markets. And we have billions of euros set aside for this growth, which shows our commitment and our ambition in offshore wind and onshore wind solar PV as well. Um, we develop onshore wind and operate onshore wind, solar PV, etc. And we operate them to multiple gigawatts at the moment. Maybe I'll just mention a key goal of RWE Renewables is to be carbon neutral by 2040, which again just shows the commitment that the organisation has to halting climate change, which I think is super positive of us. That's brilliant. No, really insightful stuff there. And I think I know you touched on um, well, the growth and the opportunities within the industry moving forward. And, and in an earlier episode, I have I had Celia Anderson on and, and we talked about, you know, a similar sort of topic. And I suppose one one thing to look at is, is um, women in STEM. And I know you've got quite a bit of information on that, but just just as a sort of overview, what, what are your thoughts on, on how it looks at the moment and what needs to be done moving forward? Yeah, so things are definitely improving, most definitely. Um, but we've still got a long way to go. There are still some challenges. There are kind of five main challenges that I see that I want to talk about today. There are probably more, but just these five kind of resonate with me personally. And so I want to talk about them. Um, and they are kind of firstly education and how we get women in STEM at school, because that's kind of the key moment that we need to engage them. Secondly is to do with imposter syndrome. Thirdly, to do with perceptions of women and unconscious perceptions of women in professional businesses. Fourth is the concept of amplified mistakes, but also on the flip side, amplified successes. And fifth, and probably the most important um, and resonant for me personally is having children and how that fits into your work-life balance. They sound like really, really interesting points. So um, yeah, yeah, I mean, let's go with the, with the first and, and work through them accordingly. So. Yeah, do you, want to, do you want to start with that, point number one? Sure. So to do with education and how we get women into STEM. Now, as I've mentioned before, the only reason that I have an engineering degree is because I did A-levels in the relevant subjects in chemistry and maths and biology. I wouldn't have been able to enter onto that degree without those A-levels. But the only reason that I have those A-levels is because I did the GCSE in triple science. And that is kind of the key moment that we need to get people engaged with the benefits of picking the sciences at GCSE and then further at A-levels. Now, of course, growing up and being a teenager, it's difficult. 
you know, we've all done it. We know that it's difficult. We know that there's lots of concerns that to us now as adults seem trivial, but at the time it's really important to them and it's their whole world. So things like making friends and being popular, your hobbies and, and fashion, and probably even more so now, not so much when I was at school, but the influence of social media. I am not a child now and I don't have any children, so I don't really know what the impact of social media is on, on kids now, but I can imagine that it's quite profound. Um, so, you know, of course, it's going to be difficult to fully engage people at this age with their education because they've got lots of other stuff going on in their brain, which is totally understandable. Now, I'm not an expert in education, but I think that some solutions to this could be engagement from really exciting role models at that age. I don't really know how we would do this, but having some kind of interactive, fun session at schools that is not just a sit down, boring presentation from someone, you know, that is just trying to present their job to them. It needs to be exciting. It needs to be, you know, it needs to grab their attention. And that's super important. And then secondly is just demonstrations of how opportunities can be unlocked with STEM subjects and picking science at GCSE. When I was at school, I think the careers that are promoted to you are what medicine, being a vet, being working in a bank, things like that. But actually having a STEM degree can unlock so many things for you. And you can't get that STEM degree without doing this GCSE. So if we could do some kind of promotion of the broad opportunities that are available to you, with science GCSEs, I think that that could really help. You know, that, that's really interesting stuff. And I think one thing Celia touched on in, in, in a previous conversation as well is, is there's a bit of a leaky pipeline as well in terms of, you know, going from the point that GCSEs, as you mentioned, all the way through. Is it something you you personally could look to do, do you think, or take on? Or, or do you know of any schemes or anything that are pushing this forward? Or is there nothing out there? Because it sounds like from your experience, it was the, the science teacher that recommended it to you. Without that, do you think you may have taken a completely different route? And Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And yeah, you're right. Without my science teacher, I'm going to name him. I don't think he'll mind me naming him. But he was my A-level chemistry teacher. He was called Bob Mudd. He was fantastic. He really brought me out of my shell by pushing my boundaries. When I started A-levels, I was quite shy. I didn't really like speaking up especially in front of the class, and he made you speak up. He picked on you to answer a question. And at the time, that was excruciating. You know, you hated it. But that really helped me develop as a person, and I cannot thank him enough for that. So I hope he listens to this. If you are, Bob, thank you very much, and hello. <laughs> but no, you're right. If, if it wasn't for him suggesting engineering as a career, I don't think that I would have gone into it. What I would have gone into, I have no idea. But yes you definitely need that role model to push you in that direction okay then so going on to your next point um, that you want to talk about what, what's your sort of overall thoughts on that particular subject yeah so the subject of imposter syndrome it's a term that i think is wafted about occasionally but people maybe sometimes don't understand and what it means is that you just don't feel as confident as a professional in your role and you almost feel like you don't deserve to be there and that you're not good enough to be there and the people sitting around the table are somehow better than you and women are much more likely to feel imposter syndrome than men and why this is I mean I don't know I'm not a psychologist but from just doing some thinking on my own I think it's potentially because 
as girls grow up, they have they very much have a a culture of needing to be ladylike, whereas boys have a boys will be boys mentality. And what that means is that I think that girls are influenced to be told that they can't do something because they're female, because they're a girl. You know, oh no, you can't do that. You need to be ladylike. And I think that sticks with you, you know. Um, you have it in the back of your mind. Oh, I, I, I couldn't do that. I can't behave like that because I'm a girl. I'm, I'm not allowed to and I can't get away with it. And I feel like that leads women to be much more cautious and evaluate and scrutinise themselves a little bit more than men. Again, because they feel like they can't get away with things. They can't get away with as much just because of their gender, which is obviously such a shame. For me, I, I don't struggle with imposter syndrome so much um, because I've, I've just learned to be more confident in my abilities and I've learned that I've worked hard to get where I am today and I deserve to be there and I'm here for a reason. But I know that some women don't feel like that, which is such a shame. Um, and I think it can definitely hold women back for going for opportunities that their male counterparts who are qualified exactly the same as them would automatically just go for because they don't see any problem with it. Whereas a woman might be more likely to say, mm, I don't think I'm so qualified enough to do that role, um, which is not which is not correct. Um, you are qualified enough. You definitely are. But it's just a natural feeling that I think some women get. I, obviously, I can't speak for all women. I'm only one woman. I think we also need to balance having imposter syndrome versus just having some logical thinking about who you are. So I'm 26 years old. I've been in my role for a year and a half. I'm not going to apply for Anya, our CEO's role. I'm not qualified enough for that role. I know that. And that's just logical thinking. Whereas imposter syndrome would say to you or say to me, I'm never going to get that role because I'm not good enough. And that's kind of the difference. Um, for me, I know that I can get that role in the future if I want to and if I work hard enough because I don't so much struggle with imposter syndrome. But I know that for some women, it's a real problem. Yeah, definitely. And I did I did read recently somewhere that um, women are uh, more inclined to feel imposter syndrome than men. So I think it's a really valid point and some really, really valid advice as well for, for anyone that's listening that might be interested in, in entering the industry and might not feel good enough, whereas more than likely they're, they're probably wrong and they are good enough and they just need to, to make that leap. So no, that's re really, really insightful stuff there, Georgia. And so, so the third point of, of unconscious perceptions of women in, in, in roles in, in industry, what, what's your overview on that then? Yeah, so I'm incredibly lucky to work for a very progressive and modern company. So again, I, I can't speak for all women. This is only from my experience. And it, it might be a different situation for women that work in the more dirty generation side of the industry. So the traditional power plants, et cetera, where there is a lot more of a boys club mentality, I think. You know, I haven't worked there, so I, I can't explicitly say but that's what I think. Um, but I do think that in general, not just in the energy industry, but just in life in general, there are unconscious perceptions and thoughts that do need to be challenged about women. I feel like if a woman is confident and they speak up for themselves and they really fight their corner when they're being questioned, they can be seen as bossy or defensive or stroppy and that is really wrong and it needs to change because I would challenge them if that was a man fighting his corner and speaking up for themselves he would be seen as assertive and confident and dominant and why can't a woman a woman be assertive confident and dominant so I would really challenge anyone listening if they have unconscious perceptions of women 
you don't mean to do it it's just unconscious but imagine if what a woman is saying to you is being said by a man and would you perceive it in the same way now, this is great and um i suppose i mean i'm i'm getting an education from this myself and i think it's just really valid points and in, in, in more of these conversations i think just not only just in in this particular industry in, in wind and whatnot but you know across the whole the wider spectrum of everything out there things like this need to be talked about so um, no re really interesting and so so moving on to amplification of uh, successes and mistakes can you explain what's meant by that in a little bit more please yeah sure so this is something that weighs on me definitely and sometimes i feel like if i make a mistake i am really conscious that i don't want that to be a suggestion about all women when you are a minority in the business you're working for um i'm i'm we have women in our engineering department, but there are definitely more men. I don't want to make a mistake and feel like I've let the side down because I don't want people to see me as a woman who has made a mistake. I want people to see me as, oh, they've made a mistake. It's not because they're a woman, essentially. Um, I, I don't want that to amplify any ideas of unconfidence in any women's abilities because obviously that's not correct. Everybody makes mistakes. But I feel like when you are a minority in the business you're in, you really have that weight on your shoulders that you don't want to let the side down and you almost want to be perfect because you don't want to, as I say, let, let that side down for women. On the flip side though, if you have a success, it can mean that it's noticed more, which you need to use that. If you're good at what you do and you do something well, people see that and people remember you, which is so important and you need to make sure you utilize that. Some some really strong stuff representing the, the females in industry here. Coming on to the, the, the fifth point in, in regards to, um, you know, mothers in industry, and, and I know we've discussed this previously in the past and it's something you're passionate about. Can, can you can you give us an overview and your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, so personally, this is the biggest challenge for me, maybe not for other women, but for me. It's something that I think about a lot and I'm very conflicted about. I'm 26 now and I really would love a family in the future. But of course, I love my job and I want to advance my career in this ever-changing, fast-paced market. And I have a fear, and I don't think it's an irrational fear, I think it's rational, that I will miss out if I have a family. And that is something that, of course, weighs on my shoulders. And there's that conflict there between wanting a family and, and advancing your career. There's been a lot of research done that there is a gender pay gap, of course, we've seen that, but it's less a gender pay gap and more a mother pay gap. Men and women's pay remains fairly constant until women leave to have children, and that's the point where it drops, which is just, it seems so unfair, it seems so wrong. And the solutions are difficult, um, but I think that solutions are there. I feel like when women go on maternity leave, this is just my view personally, but they could get left behind and they can feel like they're missing out while they're at home with their baby. Of course, doing a very important job, keeping somebody else alive. They're watching their male colleagues who were previously at the same level as them get promoted. And I think that can be really disheartening for some women. And it's naturally a setback financially, within your career, personally, in terms of development. And of course, you're always gonna have that guilt of wanting to go back to work, but then leaving your baby. Of course, nobody wants to do that. But if work is really important to you, you need to do that for yourself. And finding that balance between work and looking after your child, I can imagine is just impossible. And whatever you do, 
you're going to be criticized for it. There is also a guilt of leaving your child with your parents. If you're lucky enough to have that support from your parents, that they'll look after your child for you. I can imagine people still feel guilty because your parents have raised you as their child and you don't know if they then want to raise another child because they're looking after your kid while you're at work. But some for some people, that's what they have to do because childcare costs are so expensive. So I really think there is just no ideal perfect solution in this situation. And it's something that really I have to think about a lot every day. Do I want to go back to work straight away after having a child and leave my child and spend a lot on childcare or have to make my parents look after the child? Or do I want to stay at home with the baby and miss out on career opportunities that I know that my male counterparts are taking advantage of? Really, really serious stuff to be honest and, and probably something that well, certainly as a male I would never really consider and would probably never have to in my career what would some solutions look like to you then? Yeah so support and solutions I really believe have to start in government legislation there really needs to be a proper good legal foundation to help working parents there is support already and of course we live in the UK we're incredibly privileged with the support we get compared to a lot of other countries but it's still not perfect it's really not perfect and that legislation I think can help boost companies into providing the support they need for their workers they need to make sure that women are not left behind if they want to have children I don't know what that looks like is that getting them involved in things while they're away is that making sure that they're aware of developments in the organization? I haven't gone on maternity leave, so I don't know if this happens or not, um, but they just need to make sure they're not, not left behind. They need to provide appropriate support, like flexible working, which RWE Renewables do provide flexible work, which I'm incredibly grateful for. Things like shared parental leave, so shared leave between the mother and the father could be a great option. And thirdly, childcare. Childcare, I think, is one of the biggest issues that is going on right now with working mothers because it's so expensive and some women actually can't afford to go back to work because of childcare costs that are so extortionate, which is so sad. You wouldn't want anyone to ever not be able to afford to go back to work. That's completely illogical and so unfair. So we need to make childcare easier and cheaper for working parents, not just women, for working parents that want to take advantage of it and want to go back to work. I will mention the, the RWE office in Swindon. One thing that I've seen that's amazing is it's got a nursing room, which is just so progressive and something that I'm so thankful for, the fact that they have thought of that. And I would really encourage other companies to take on board that idea. Again, yeah, just, just really insightful stuff and, and really important as well, because this spins back in so many ways. Obviously, if you bring it back to the offshore wind and the growth the growth within the industry you know there's targets in the sector deal um to increase the female workforce from what you've said it's 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 not as straightforward as just giving people jobs there's a lot of complexities and and in in certain ways you know quite a bit of unfairness in, in the way it's set out and yeah i really commend you for for using this platform as well to bring that up because it is important and are you going to do anything further on this are you going to speak to the government how, how would it how would you get involved and try and change things yeah that's a really good question and to be honest I haven't got any plan in the future to do this I haven't put anything together but from speaking to you today you've really sparked my drive to want to do something like that I don't know how far I'll get but certainly 
bringing this issue to the public, which is what we're doing with this platform, and potentially writing to government is something that I could potentially do. And it's realistically not too much effort that could bring great benefit. So yeah, speaking to you has really sparked my my drive to do this now. We, we are coming towards the um, the end of this conversation. I mean, we could talk for hours probably about some of these topics. <laughs> what, what does the future of the industry look like to you then? Well, yeah, I mean, massive um, is one thing that I can say. We have seen the growth in renewables. It's been growing exponentially and renewables are going to be part of our lives forever now. I think secondly, we're going to see the industry diversify a lot more as we have much more drive to have more diverse workforces. That's definitely something we're going to see in renewables because it's such a new business and it's got a lot of new talent coming into it from universities and from the oil and gas sector that are transferring over their jobs. Noted and understood and we're going to have to call it a day there. I think there's going to be more discussions similar to what we've just had today about this part of the industry and I think It'd be really good to catch up with you in the not too distant future as well and, and see how you're going with things and you know see if you make any progress with with the stuff that you're you're really passionate for and and trying to make change in the industry yeah thanks chris it's been a really good conversation thank you so much for having me on really appreciate it cheers georgia and uh, we'll speak again soon take care Thanks again to Georgia for taking the time to speak. Um, some key takeaways from this particular episode, I think a commonly occurring theme in this podcast is now the sheer size and scale of the technology, which is growing year on year. And it'll be interesting to reference this point in 12 months time and see where things are up to. Students, uh, don't be afraid to engineer opportunities for yourself. Explore where you want to go. And, and when you find a particular subject you're interested in, find the prominent people working in that area and network with them. Of course, women in industry, it seems like there's a lot of challenges and, and I learned a great deal from this conversation. I think a lot is being done and it does seem that offshore wind is very progressive industry, but there's still quite a long road ahead and we will be exploring this and, and other uh, subjects in the series. So we'd really like to get your thoughts on today's conversation. So please do get in touch if you have anything to add. And yeah, next week we're being joined by a, a woman in industry who is flying the flag for the communications part of offshore wind, which is going to be a really interesting conversation. Speak to you then.